Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. 
LGBT Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Of course, we are at the interview part of the show, and joining us is um, an incredible writer. He's been all over the place, and he's uh, his his main job is uh, being the Daniel Craig impersonator. So uh, <laughs> thank you for being here, Lee Goldberg. It's not so much a, a job as it is a calling. <laughs> uh, it's demanded of me because of the shockingly similar look that we have. <laughs> and, of course, you can tell from my voice, we're identical. So I really have no control over it. I know. You've got the accent down, I'll tell you. Oh, it, it just comes naturally. It's almost genetic. Uh, so where, where did all that good looks and, and charm and everything come from? My God. Walla Walla, Washington. Oh. oh. That's where my family's from. So I wow. get this from from eating all those onions. Onions. <laughs> Onions and hanging out at the, at the prison. There you go. That's right. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I worked in a department store in Portland, Oregon, and we had a, a girl that came from Walla Walla. Yeah, she... Well, in a, my family is divided between Walla Walla and Portland. My mom's from Walla Walla. My dad's from uh, the Portland area. So I, I straddle both. <laughs> I have heard that. Now... Uh... <laughs> Oh, 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 you just assume that because I live in Los Angeles and I'm in the Hollywood, I'm in the movie business. Well, that's what you guys all do. Come on. That's true. That's yeah. true. I, uh, we yeah. really are going to have a probing interview, yeah, aren't he's, we? Yeah, he's, a, he, he's really a gold dang, Goldstein guy, you know, not Weinstein. Um, now, where did oh. it, now I see this. Um, you were a Navy SEAL. No, you weren't. I was. You know, I can't figure out what's true and what's not. You go through. I, I also say in that bio I was a sexual surrogate and I negotiated the North American Free Trade Agreement. Yeah. <laughs> you, 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 didn't, you didn't sense the, a little tongue in cheek there? Uh, no, um, I believe everything I read on the Internet. No, I, I'm, I'm, I was not a Navy SEAL. Um, I just pick up the newspaper in my driveway is a physical feat for me. Um, I, I, I was born in, in Northern California. My, as I mentioned before, my mom and dad are, are from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, my father was a television anchorman on KPIX in San Francisco. So we always talked like this. His entire life, he always spoke as if he was on camera at all times. And my mom was a gossip columnist. She went to parties for a living. And uh, she did that right up until the day she died. She, uh, so writing was kind of the family business, but not, not in fiction. And um, I, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, went to school at UCLA, wrote my first novel, 357 Vigilante, under the pseudonym Ian Ludlow, when I was still a student at UCLA. And uh, the book came out. It was a big success. I got hired to write the screenplay. And uh, the movie was never made, but that's how my screenwriting career was born. And ever since then, I've had a career on dual tracks uh, as a novelist, 
and as a screenwriter producer. Yeah, but more importantly, I see you wrote erotic letters for Playgirl. <laughs> I did. When I was in college, I had a girlfriend who was an editorial assistant at Playgirl, and they needed letters. So I wrote for $25 a letter, um, letters to the editor with you know women who had sexual problems or relationship issues, and it was great. I learned how to write about sex. I also learned how to write in other people's voices. It it was wonderful. I got I got paid to uh, to hone my craft as a as a writer. It was a lot of fun. Wow. Where where do you get all of your characters from? Like uh, you sound like you have a great imagination, but um, is there is there something like you cross paths with certain people and and the way they behave or act, and then you draw from that to create a character, or is it people you know even better? I have no idea. I'm assuming that it's from people I meet. And it just gets mixed up in, in a soup in my brain, and I come up with the characters that way. Um, but I, I don't, when I'm coming up with a character as the center of a book or a screenplay, I start with the conflict first. You know, what, what's the conflict I want to explore? And the characters kind of arise from the conflict that I'm going to be writing about. Um, rather than me coming up with a great character and then discovering a story for that character, the story determines the character for me. So Lee, I, I have a question about that. That's that's interesting to me. So like in um, like Lost Hills, was it what what's the conflict? Was it the murder that you started thinking about first, or like how it was covered up, or like how did you go? What was the concept there that moved out to Eve? That is a perfect example. I had I wanted to write a police procedural, and I actually had a story in mind, and I went to a homicide investigator's training conference in Green Bay, Wisconsin. This is a conference for homicide investigators, not open to the civilians. It's to, if I remember the rules right, a homicide investigator, at least in Wisconsin, has to have 24 hours of re-education every year to certify to be a homicide detective. So they're required to take this course once a year and learn new investigative techniques or learn from the mistakes of others. And, and I have a friend who runs that, um, that seminar, and he invited me to attend. So I was one of two civilians at this at this homicide investigator seminar, and wow. they presented a case that if you'd gone into this homicide case with any police common sense, with any homicide investigator's common sense, you wouldn't have solved it. They used this case as, a, as an example of why it's necessary to approach each murder investigation as if it's your very first. Mm. They have no assumptions of any kind. Oh, cool. It'd be a, a, a blank slate, which which is hard to do if you're an experienced homicide detective, because you you create a based on past experiences and what you've seen, what you think, how the clues fit together. But I, I became obsessed with this case. I thought the case was fascinating, and I wanted to, I could I saw immediately how I could fictionalize it. But to become a homicide detective, you have to have a lot of experience. So how could I create a character who is a newbie? who doesn't have to pretend that he or she doesn't have this experience, I'd put someone in there who doesn't have the experience. Yeah. So the more I started thinking about this character, the character of Eve Roden began to form. Okay, what if she got this job not out of merit or experience, but out of politics? And um, she got into it because she, she leveraged uh, something else to get there. So she doesn't deserve the job, but she finds herself in the job that, where she's resented. And yeah. I tried to make it a woman because I'm tired of, of male heroes. And I thought it would be much more interesting if she's a young woman in a job she doesn't deserve who suddenly has to prove herself. And so she is going into this as a, 
as a newbie, someone who hasn't ever investigated a homicide before. So, so she's going up against the assumptions and common sense of her coworkers. So the the case in a hundred percent determined who the character was. I had a sleepless night after I heard about this case. I spent all night just the character was coming to me. Hmm. Um, it was so strongly, and so the next day I told all the detectives who were presenting this case that I was going to fictionalize it as my next book and would they help me out and and they all said yes which is cool wow how how does that work with an ongoing series so like once you have a lot of flexibility with the first book right with Eve are you more constrained in that next one when you come to the concept oh no no because I mean I've fictionalized the case quite a bit and I, I twisted it to my own fictional needs but I, I have created this character now who is in a job she doesn't deserve, who has proved herself with her first case, but she's still very much aware of how much she doesn't know. And so is everybody else around her. A lot of people think she lucked into solving that first case. Oh, okay. So I, I'm able to show her evolving and, and acquiring knowledge and experience. So, yes, with each book she becomes more experienced and more confident, but she still makes big mistakes. She's not Harry Bosch. She's right. not... A, a cop who is really secure in her abilities and and confident in her assumptions and who does everything right but just doesn't get the credit for it. She makes some really stupid mistakes that, that really undermine her own ability to solve the case. And that makes it exciting to me. So, yes, maybe in five years she'll be a seasoned homicide detective, but we'll all have grown with her and we'll have seen the experience that makes her who she is and the mistakes she's made that she's still trying to to repair. Well, and I have read the... I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. It gives me somewhere to go. Yeah. You start out with a perfect character. Not perfect, but someone who's confident and established, and you don't have conflict. You don't have any room to, to really expand that character. You're repeating yourself all the time, and, and this way I can evolve her as I go along. Right. Hmm. Oh, wow, that's crazy. When you when you're writing these stories, you're so um, you're you're writing in the um, modern times. Do you, do you have to be careful on how you write it? Um, like with all the different events going on and and you know COVID and all this stuff happening in real life, um, do you, do you try to avoid all of that sort of stuff? Um, in terms of COVID, I actually had a conversation because literally signed my contract yesterday for my next Eve Ronan novel which will be coming out at the end of 2021. And we had to ask ourselves, do we want to acknowledge COVID-19? And what we decided was we don't know what the future is going to be like and how society will have changed because of the coronavirus. So do I want to set the book during the pandemic? I think most people want to forget being locked up during the pandemic. <laughs> so the, the book that comes, I have a book coming out in January of 2021, the second Erona novel, and that book takes place in, in January, and I don't, I don't say what year, but we can assume January of, of 2020. So this book I'm writing now, about to start writing as soon as I get off the phone with you, um, can, can be set in February of, of 2020 when we're aware that the coronavirus is out there, but it hasn't really impacted us yet. So, and my story takes place over the course of seven days, so it, it, won't, it won't be that big of a deal. And then I can decide later for book number four, I'll know then what, how our society has changed because of coronavirus, whether it was a passing thing or a lasting thing, and whether or not to insert it into my book. I mean, if you look at uh, Michael Connolly and, and the Harry Bosch books, 
his books existed during the Rodney King riots and all of that, and it didn't have a big impact in the books. I don't think he he mentioned it much. He did recently. He had a flashback kind of novel about uh, a case that comes back from the Rodney King era, but I don't think, if memory serves, he really addressed it in his in his books. I think that's probably the wise way to go, only because you don't want to date your books. You want them to still be contemporary if people read them five years from now. Right, right. Well, you know, you might not put it in directly, but does it uh, indirectly maybe uh, get in somehow? Do, do You know, because with this going on and it affects you um, personally, um, doesn't your um, the, the nature of the book become darker maybe? Um, it might, might. I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how my unconscious feelings affect my writing, but I don't like to write dark stuff anyway. Even my my police procedurals have a sense of humor. I always have humor in my books. And this character, if you're talking about not just coronavirus, but Black Lives Matter and, and all the issues about police brutality and everything, my character, Eve Ronan, is a fighter anyway. She's already going up against the status quo. She's already fighting for the little guy. She's already fighting for women. She's already fighting uh, against racism. And those are big issues, in fact, in the book that hasn't even come out yet that predates Black Lives Matter and, and all that stuff when I wrote it. So I, I, I'm not consciously thinking about what's happening in our society as I'm crafting these stories. I'm just trying to tell a good story that will entertain and, and that readers will find compelling. Hmm. And not get too caught up in like even in my political thrillers, I, I never made the president Trump, or or expressly <laughs> talked about what's going on now, right. because well, you don't want to date it. Um, and nobody would believe it. That's, you know, that's the hardest thing about writing the you know, spy thrillers right now. I don't know how they're doing the James Bond movies. It, it's it, it's hard to top what's happening in reality. And in my books. I, so much of what I've written in the Ian Ludlow thrillers has come true. And in, in, in the case of Fake Truth, which came out in mid-April, everything I wrote about that seemed so fantastical when I was writing it a year earlier, virtually all of it came true. I had to put an author's note at the end of the book saying, I didn't rip this off from the headlines. When I wrote this book back in, whatever the date was, I put it in there, none of this had happened. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to keep up with the real world. Uh, yeah, because the real world seems to be more fictional than a lot of the books. It, it seems to be crazier. But. In my book, Killer Thriller, I, I joked about how the Chinese were buying hotel chains, not for the real estate, but for the credit card information and all the personal stuff, and that they were using you know, all the toys that are being manufactured in in China and your TV sets. They're all spying on you. You know, I thought I was being over the top. It all turned out to be true. <laughs> I, I even made a joke about um, Americans, you know, um, army bases using cameras that were built in China, not realizing that China had created a back door that allowed them to spy on American military bases. No sooner did my book come out then, sure enough, American military bases are pulling all these Chinese cameras because they have a back door. It's just, yeah. uh, it was astonishing to me. And, and, and my wife is very funny. She's like, if you can predict the future, why don't you predict the winning lottery number? Or, or you know, what cars are going blackjack at Vegas, or what stocks to buy? Yeah, Not sure. evil stuff for thrillers. Yeah, make it work. Well, that's. But doesn't that kind of, um, in a sense, um, like like where does that come from? Like those those ideas, I couldn't imagine. I mean, I I write true crime, so what I do is is based on reality and what's really going on. 
so but you create these but then they really happen so like where does that you have no idea where that comes from do you just have a uh, well it's interesting because and this is true i'm not making this up during world war ii and after 9-11 and a lot of other big terrorist events and 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 things the united states government will reach out to writers and say we're bureaucrats we don't have the imagination to figure out what's going to happen next can you come and, and just spin some some evil plot ideas so we can get some idea of, of where we might be vulnerable or might, what might happen next. I mean, uh, there's a, you know, 9-11 was horrible, the two planes that fly into the World Trade Center. I wrote and produced an episode of Martial Law, a CBS TV series, where that happened, years before 9-11. And there have been many cases where um, thriller writers have been ahead of real events happening. So the United States government has brought in Lee Child and Michael Connolly and Brad Meltzer and, and other authors to just come in and spitball. Just so, so they, Lee, they. Oh, I'm sorry. And, and I, in fact, I used that. I was having dinner with Brad Meltzer, and he was talking about that. And I thought, oh, that's a cool idea. And and that became part of my the basis for my novel, True Fiction. That's um, what, so. I was going to ask that because so you clearly knew about that when you wrote True Fiction. But had you started to see the pattern in your own writing at that point when you wrote True no. Fiction? No, and it was interesting once True Fiction came out, how much of what was in True Fiction turned out to be true. Yeah. <laughs> People were saying it's scary. It's meant to be funny and a satire, but so much of it is so close to the bone, so real. And it wasn't when I wrote the book. It's just, it's amazing how, and that's why True Fiction is such an apt title or fake truth, because so much of fiction is becoming real, and, and, and real people are telling so many fictions it's getting harder and harder to separate the two. Right. Especially when our president is the liar-in-chief, you know, not the <laughs> president of the commander-in-chief. Well, I was going to say, and, and conspiracy, like, it seems to be a real anti-science movement and anti-truth. People are, are, are really more focused on a conspiratorial outlook. They'd rather choose the conspiracy than the truth. And uh, I just I just wonder if if you ever worry about some of your fiction books rubbing off on on people, people getting ideas and thinking, oh yeah. Well, I want I, I can't talk in too much detail, but many years ago, I got a call from the FBI because somebody had taken an element for one of my diagnosis murder novels and had used it in the commission of a crime and oh, wow. uh, did I had I ever had contact with this individual it's like no no <laughs> how bizarre <laughs> but you know, there's, there's a long history of this kind of thing happening um, there was an, a writer named Dan J. Marlowe who wrote this fantastic book about a bank robbery and the FBI began following him because they thought that he was involved in bank robberies it was, the, the robbery he described was very similar to one that was unsolved, and, and it turned out later that a, a bank robber started communicating with Dan from prison, uh, saying, God, your bank robbery books are great. You really get it right. Um, how did you do that? And, and they became friends, and the FBI began to wonder if it was more than just a friendship. <laughs> so there's that. And then there's another story, and I, I may be getting some of the details wrong on this one, but Glenn Larson was the producer of The Six Million Dollar Man, and... Uh, remember that's the guy with the bionic limbs, and you know, he, yeah. and, and some kid, yeah, some kid thought he was was pretending to be Steve Austin and stuck his leg out of the car to stop the car from 
moving and oh. tore his leg off or something. Wow. And, and, and they approached Glenn Larson and said, are you going to change Six Million Dollar Man because people could try to imitate what Steve Austin's doing and get hurt? And I think Glenn's response was, why should I rewrite the show for idiots? I mean, pick <laughs> your leg out of a car and try to stop it. No, I'm not going to change the Six Million Dollar Man. <laughs> so I think people get ideas from TV shows all the time about how to commit crimes. Certainly, there's the CSI effect. CSI has taught so many criminals how to clean up behind themselves so they don't leave forensic evidence behind. So, yeah, television and books have a huge impact on, on society, but also on our expectations. You, you, you see how private eyes and how cops work, and you expect real private eyes and real cops to behave the same way, and they don't. Mm. Yeah. Well, and that, so you must do a, a great amount of research to make sure that uh, when you're writing these stories, there's got to be um, an element of truth to how, to how it's done? I do an enormous amount of research, and then I don't want to use the research. What I mean by that is <laughs> I want to get just enough truth that you will buy all my BS. Because I'm not writing true crime like you. I, I'm not writing a documentary. I'm writing entertainment. So I just want to get those little bits of reality, those moments of verisimilitude that will pull you into believing what I'm doing. They'll get you to invest in my characters and the story. But I take huge liberties. I mean, Lost Hills is a good example. I have... This, these homicide investigators working out of Lost Hills. Um, and there are no homicide investigators working out of Lost Hills. They work out of the headquarters you know, elsewhere. Um, uh, I take the liberties that are necessary to make my story work. But the forensics were real, and, and the procedures were real. So you, you, you're willing to buy the stuff that, that isn't real, or that doesn't matter that you never know isn't real because it's, it's too in the weeds. Mm. Um, I, I don't... I've had cops, you know, read my books and tell me how much they enjoy it. That yeah, you really got the essence of it. Um, so you look at you look at Law and Order Special Victims Unit or Boston Legal, and, where you have someone arrested and three days later there's the trial. Mm. <laughs> it's necessary right. to, to to compress things to get the story to move, whether it's in TV or in books. So you're you're not. I don't feel an obligation to be realistic. I feel an obligation to tell a good story. So, uh, of the two, uh, so writing for TV and writing for books, um, what do you find the biggest difference? Oh, it's a massive difference. It's an entirely different way of thinking. It's an entirely different way of life. Um, when you're writing a script, you're essentially writing a blueprint for other people to do their best work. It's not, it's not a book. It's not something you read for pleasure. It's something you read to figure out what your job is. If you're a director or an actor, or a location manager, or a set designer. It, it does tell a story, but the story is told through action and dialogue. If you don't see it and you don't hear it, it doesn't happen. And you only have, in, the, in TV, 44 pages, you know, or 44 minutes to, to get that story across, and you have to do it within the four-act structure and, they're all, and a certain budget, shooting schedule. There are so many things that impact the way the story is told. And in a book... You, you have the freedom to do anything you want, which is also a, a handicap because you can really bog down the book in internal monologues and exposition. You are the writer. You're also the director, the actor, the set designer, location manager. You're all those people. And the story doesn't have to be driven by action and dialogue. It can be driven by emotion. It can be driven by internal thoughts and things. It's, it's a whole different way 
It can be driven by the point of view of a tree. <laughs> you, you can make a tree sentient if you want. You, know, you, you, can, you can do just about anything in a book. Uh, a book is a solitary experience, whereas writing a script is a group experience. You're working with a lot of other people. If you're on a TV show, you're working with a writer's room, a writing staff. If you're writing a TV movie or a feature film, you're still working with producers and actors and directors and budgets. You, you, a lot of people have input, and networks and studios uh, and, and marketing people. So it's, it's two entirely different ways of telling a story. I think writing a script is easier for me than writing a book. I can also write a script faster than I can write a book. So in some situations, I will write a screenplay version of my book just to get on its feet for me to see if it works. And then if I have that screenplay, I use that as a detailed outline for my novel. So it's interesting to me that you say that it's, I mean, that it's faster for you because you're also very prolific. Do you, do you have a schedule for yourself? Or, like, what, what would you say has been helpful for you in being such a prolific novelist? A mortgage. <laughs> Kids. A wife. I mean, okay. my dog is expensive. Um, <laughs> usually, whatever the deadline is closest is what I work on first. And in television, usually that's the, the quickest deadline. Um, it's when they need it soonest because they're shooting. And if you don't have it done, there's going to be 200 people sitting around the set thinking their nose, and you're going to be losing $200,000 a day. Um, so that's a lot of pressure to get the work done on time. Yeah. Um, in a perfect world, I, I write two books a year, and I can write a couple scripts during that time as well. That, that works out just fine for me. I had one insane year where I was writing four books a year while writing and producing a TV series, and I just about killed myself doing that. Oh, wow. So I, it takes me about five months to write a book and one month to decompress and plot the next one. Mm-hmm. And you know, during the period that I'm writing a book, I can write scripts during the day and the books in the evening. And uh, Or I can set the book aside and just concentrate on the script, get the script done, and then jump back onto the book. I've never missed a deadline in my life, not even wow. when I had two broken arms. Oh. <laughs> deadline is a great motivator. Well, I mean, but it, it, so is there a certain formula that you use to create, especially in scripts? Like, I, I mean, well, yeah, when you watch stuff like Netflix and TV series and stuff like that, there's so many episodes that have to be done. Um I'm almost getting a feeling there's a lot of things I've seen before. Well, there's no formula. And the, only, the only formula, I wouldn't even call it a formula, but in television you have the four-act structure, and that's the way all the stories are told, even on HBO and, and Netflix where there's no commercials. This is because we've all become ingrained where we expect that subconsciously for a story to unfold that way, or in films, the three-act structure. So that's, that's, in terms of storytelling, that goes back to Aristotle's The Poetics. It's, it's not a new form. The, the three-act and four-act structure were sort of created to accommodate commercial breaks in radio and, and, uh, and, the, and the, the need to have a certain number of features play in a theater per day so a film can only be so long. So it's, it's, it's all about how to hold an audience. But in terms of a TV series, you have the franchise, what the show is about, what sets it apart from other shows. And viewers want the same show every week, only different. They want the, the Perry Mason to solve the case in the courtroom. They right. want Adrian Monk to you know, to be afraid of touching things and organizing things and, and, and um, solve the case in that way. You, you, 
you have an expectation of what the show is going to be every time you come into it. And if the show violates that contract, if they don't give you the same show every week, only different, it's called jumping the shark. And that's the moment when the show violates their own franchise, when they violate the agreement with you about the entertainment they're going to provide each week. Mm -hmm. Law and order. You know it's the police who investigate crimes and the, the prosecutors who go after the offenders. You know that they're going to go after the wrong person in Act 1. They're going to go after the right person in Act 2. You know, in Act 3, the key piece of evidence or the key witness testimony will be thrown out. In Act 4, the prosecutors will still win. That was every single Law & Order episode for 20 years, and we loved it. And it's the same way with Star Trek or Perry Mason or Matlock or CSI or Monk. Every show has their own formula, and that's not a bad thing. It's what the audience wants. And if you don't give them that, they get very upset. But they want something different. They want to be. They want to enjoy the show. But they want to know what it is they're coming to enjoy. So that's the sort of the the difficult thing about series television. And yes, you can get burned out. You can get tired. Uh, I, I quit diagnosis murder after 100 episodes because I had no more diagnosis murder stories to tell. Hmm. I quit writing the monk novels after 15 of them because I had explored every aspect of monk I possibly could. You you, you have to know when to when to walk away. And when to hold them and when to fold them. <laughs> well, I think we've all we've all read series novels or watched TV shows where the gas has run out. Yeah. Where you know it's time to bring in fresh blood or to change the concept or just to let the show or the book series die. You don't want to be the you don't want to stay at the party too long. So when you write for TV, like Diagnosis Murder, are you writing for the person that stars in it as well? Like, does that affect the story you write? Oh, absolutely. Because you learn, working with that actor or actress, what they perform best and what they perform worst. What sounds natural coming out of their mouth or natural to see them do. You know their strengths and weaknesses. You know their, 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 their stuff they really deliver well and that they enjoy doing. And what they're comfortable doing. So absolutely, the roles become tailored to the actors who are playing them. Which is why over a certain time, some actors become the executive producers of their own shows because... They are the show now. They know the show better than anybody else, and um, they know what's going to work for them. So absolutely, you, you learn you learn what words play best coming out of their mouths, what type of words, uh, the rhythm of the words, what kind of scenes they play best in. Um, absolutely. And you also write for the weaknesses. If you have a bad actor, you, <laughs> you write around their badness and make them look good. I won't mention names, but I've worked with some actors who were just terrible, couldn't learn lines and had real problems. But when you saw their performances on screen, you went, oh, my God, they're fantastic. Well, we wrote around the issues, and we edited around the issues, and that's our job. Well, you can make me a star then. <laughs> yeah, yes. We're, we're bringing back Alf, and we've been thinking about you. <laughs> I don't have enough hair. Uh, well. Uh, but you know, so if, if if an actor gets changed in a in a series, um, th that can be hard then because they might they're, they're going to handle it totally different. But that can also be a a breath of life. I mean, the first season of Mission Impossible did not star Peter Graves, right? And um, you know, the first season of NYPD Blue had David Caruso, but it did just fine with Jimmy Smith. There, there are recastings all the time. And it doesn't necessarily hurt a show. Sometimes it is a, it adds new energy. Look at Cheers. When Shelley Long left, it actually reinvigorated the show. Mm 
Yeah. So sometimes yeah. the worst fear, a character dying or a character leaving, can actually be the creative jumpstart the show needs to power on for another 10 years. Hmm. A lot of what's written, and like when you talk about CSI and, and different shows like that, um, it has quite the effect on um, society. Uh, people have kind of uh, weird expectations of what to expect in real life. That's true. And, in fact, that conflict has been the core, my brother pointed this out to me, of almost all my novels. Huh. True fiction is a thriller writer who ends up having to live the thrillers he writes and finds out just how different the world is. Uh, my novel, The Walk, is about a guy who's stuck in downtown L.A. when the big one hits and has to walk across this landscape of destruction back to his home in Calabasas and discovers that all the disaster movie cliches are false. Hmm. Um, Eve Ronan, my character in Lost Hills, has become this um, social media superstar because of something that happens um, when she's off duty, and they want to make a TV series about her, and she's having to deal with that. So I've, I've always been intrigued by the conflict between what we're taught to believe about the world from the fiction we read and the, and the way the world really is. So what do you think of writing over the years? Has it changed a great deal? I believe it has. I think television and film and the way stories are told on screen has bled into books. And if you look at James Patterson and some other authors, uh, Janet Ivanovich is another one, where they've adopted some of the techniques of television to move their stories along. Because people now have so much making demands on their attention, social media, uh, email, YouTube, all this stuff, you, you don't have time to dick around. <laughs> Your story has to move. You have to grab people fast. It has to be visual. It has to be visceral. So I think the way television is written, the way it's edited, um, the way the characters are drawn has, has impacted um, books in a significant way. Do you ever feel and, a, comp a competition with other writers? No, I don't which is one of the great things about books. In, in the world of books, no authors feel like, oh, if you buy uh, his book, you're not going to buy mine. There's a real collegial feel among authors. The opposite is true in television. There's much more of a caste system. There's much more backbiting and politics, much more of dog-eat-dog. -dog. Whereas in books, the biggest names in, in, in thrillers and mysteries will hang out with newbies and nobodies as if they're all equals. There's no real... There are very few jerks in the, in the world of, of mysteries and thrillers in our genre. But in the world of television, you won't find showrunners hanging out with staff writers and freelancers. It just isn't done. It's, it's, there's a real societal difference. And that's one reason I, I love being part of both worlds. I love the collegiality and friendliness and support you get in the, in the mystery and thriller fiction community. Um, it's not quite the same in television. It is when you're in a writer's room. It's all for one and one for all. You're all working together to make the best possible show you can. But getting that job in the writer's room, you know, getting on the show is really dog-eat-dog, -dog, vicious uh, political game. And, and sometimes keeping the job can be as well. Uh, Lee, just to go back for a minute, to when you're talking about kind of the way TV has impacted books, I'm curious about the different series that you have juggle that you juggle. Some of them at the same time. You, your Ian Ludlow series is ongoing. Your Eve Ronan series is ongoing. 
Do you have any other that are current that you're still working on? Uh, books? No, I yeah. don't. Uh, so, but you've moved. I mean, you've worked in a lot of different series. Do, do they feel different to you, or are the differences when you're writing in a dif in different series are they really just technical? Like I know this oh, one. Oh no, there, there's there's huge differences. Okay. Um, the the Ian Ludlow books, my voice is all over them. My my narrator, my authorial voice, has a smart ass point of view. I I have. This sounds very self, not very self-effacing, but I'll have clever metaphors and funny jokes and interesting uh, perspectives in the prose. In Lost Hills, I want the authorial voice to be non-existent. With the exception of the first paragraph of Lost Hills, I, I, my authorial voice is just the facts, ma'am. As mm -hmm. little as I can possibly get away with. If I say something clever... I cut it, or I try to put it in the mouth of one of my characters. I want the I want I don't want to ever draw attention to the writing because then you'll remember you're reading a book. So it's a very different kind of writing, and it was very very hard for me to not you know strut my stuff so to speak. Yeah. Um. And, and when I write anything else, I make a conscious decision whether it's the monk novels that I write from uh, his assistant Natalie's point of view or the Ian Ludlow books, or my book, King City, whatever, I make a choice what my voice is going to be as, my, as the author. How much character or attitude will the omniscient narrator have if I'm not writing first person? And, it's, it's a, and then once I make that choice, I have to stick to it. And I'm very careful. In a way, the narrator is a character, too, even if the narrator isn't a character in the book. Because that's the voice you hear in your head telling you the story. So I, I make a choice. Um, is the narrator going to comment on the world or comment on a, uh, on a city or a place or, or a wardrobe or whatever? Um, and in Lost Hills, it's much more Jack Webb. It's, I, I give just enough detail to put you in the place, but without making a snarky comment or, or showing how clever I am with a... Uh, and I don't mean by snarky, but you know, I, I, I try. Janet was great at teaching me this. Yeah. If you write something, a really great metaphor, brilliant, incisive, revealing metaphor, it's going to draw the reader out, and they're going to say, ooh, good writing. Hmm. And you're not in the story anymore. And that may work in certain kinds of books, but for Lost Hills, I thought it would pull people out. So, hmm. yes, it, every book is very different for me, or every series of books, and I've got to remind myself who I am while I'm writing. I have fallen in the trap while writing Eve Ronan of falling into my Ian Ludlow voice because oh. it's so natural for me. And I realized, oh, oh my. i, I got to throw all this out. <laughs> it's so good. I'm so wonderful. It's so clever. <laughs> and i got to flush all in the toilet. You know, it, it, That's happened to me. Um, and I've also had the experience of writing in, uh, in Ian Ludlow. It's like, God, this is flat. Oh, yeah. Because I'm writing it like it's Eve Ronan. It's not. <laughs> well, you know, it's um. So, when do you get confidence enough to be able to write like that? Like, when did it happen for you? I will share a deep, dark. It's just between us, right? No one else is listening. Yeah, no, no, no way. Right. I have no confidence. <laughs> <laughs> I am a complete fraud. I know that what I'm writing now is the book or the script that's going to reveal that I don't know what the hell I am doing, 
and I've been coasting all this time. I'm totally insecure. I, 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 I often think, as I do right now while talking to you, that I've lost whatever talent I once had, that I'm not going to be able to finish this book, that what I'm writing is sh- I mean, how do the other books ever happen? I actually have, not because of ego, I have some of my books near my eye line here at my desk. And I used to have, I don't have any more, I used to have some of my TV credits framed. And not because I'm an egomaniac and I want to flaunt my, my credits, but to remind myself, Lee, relax. You've been in this position before. You'll make it through. You will finish the book. You, you will finish the script. It's not the end of the world. It never works, but, you know, I try. <laughs> I try to convince myself that, that it's not crap. I mean, so, no, I don't have that confidence yet. I have, oddly enough, I have the confidence when I'm working with other writers. When I'm writing a sh- running a show and I have to run a writing staff, I have complete confidence in giving notes to other writers and in directing their scripts or rewriting their scripts. When I'm rewriting somebody else or developing another person's script, I have total confidence in my my decisions and my guidance and all that. It's just when I do my own work, I'm I'm not so sure of myself. Well, and you gave a good. I mean, you gave that great idea of kind of reminding yourself of times it has worked. What what other advice would you give to someone who's interested in either writing for TV or writing a novel? Well, first, watch a lot of TV and read lots of novels, even good ones, <laughs> or even bad ones. Because, and read them not as a reader or as a viewer, but as a writer. How did they pull off this moment that made me laugh? How did they pull off this moment that scared me? How did they fail and, and make me hate the show or hate this moment? Mm-hmm. Analyze why it works or why it doesn't work. Also, I'm a firm believer that rewriting is writing. I rewrite the hell out of my stuff. As you may have guessed already from our conversation, I'm not precious about my own work. I have no problem deleting everything I've written for a day or throwing my stuff in uh, in a drawer. When I say delete, I never actually throw anything out. I save everything because sometimes there might be a line or a paragraph or a moment I can use for something else. But I have no problem tearing it out of a script or out of a book. I, I'm, I'm brutal as an editor of my own work. And as, as a mentor I once had told me, you're always killing your babies when you're a writer, you're often having to cut your best lines or your best scenes because you realize they're killing the momentum or distracting from the core story or uh, shifting focus when it shouldn't be shifted. You have to be really merciless about your own work um, and not be married to it and not, and not be too defensive when other people tell you it's not working and needs a rewrite. So rewriting is very important. And more importantly, yeah. you have yeah. to write. Yeah. You can't rewrite something if you haven't written it. So even if, it, even if you write... Oh, my. Easier to rewrite... Oh, my. ...than to write on a blank page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I will force myself to write because at least if I have to go back and rewrite, I've got something to work with. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then uh, and after you're dead, then your family could sell it. <laughs> That's very true. Though I've been fortunate in that I've sold probably 99% of everything I've written, at least in terms of books. Oh, wow. I have scripts that I that I haven't uh, had produced yeah. or sold, but not books. I've I've sold all my books. It'll be like Prince. So you'll have your own channel. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, so you're oh I forgot you're a relative of Burl Bear, aren't you? Yes, I am. I'm his nephew. 
well, he's your great uncle then, right? He's my uncle, not great uncle. He's my <laughs> mediocre uncle. I was going to say, you sure? He's got at least 60 years on you. Come on. Uh, he's my uncle. He's my sister's brother. My sister's brother. That was interesting one. He's my mother's brother. My mother was his sister. Hey, God. Walla, walla. I, I, I got to stop drinking this early in the day. Yeah, what time is it? Yeah, you know, well, you know, but you're going through the uh, operation, so you need you need to have some alcohol. Yes, my, my uncle is a true crime writer and yeah. uh, nonfiction writer. I got him his first book contract. Oh, wow, that's great. Wow. Yeah, he was. It's just going back. I won't, I won't say how many years, but I was a kid, and I I wrote a book called Unsold Television Pilots: Every Idea Rejected by the Networks Since the Dawn of Television, and it was published. I think just after I got out of college, I started writing when I was a teenager, and it took me all through college to do all the research, and I got it published. It was a big hit. Uh, Johnny Carson had it on his show, and I got flown out to Washington D.C. to be on uh, Charlie Rose's show, and it was. It was really a big success, and um, my uncle was really jealous, and he said, I wish I could write a book like that, and I said, you're the world's expert on the saint. You can write the greatest book in the world on the saint. He said, no one you know, write a book for me about the saint. I said, sure, why don't you write up something about, about a saint book, and he wrote something up, and he said, see, no one's ever going to buy it. Well, I secretly sent the proposal to my publisher, mm-hmm. and we went fishing at Loon Lake one summer, and... I handed him the contract. He's like, what? Wow. <laughs> and, uh, he ended up writing the book, and the book got the Edgar Award, which is like the Oscar of mystery writing, for nonfiction. Wow. It was called The Saint, A Complete History. And from The Saint, he got the uh, assignment to write the making of the Maverick movie, and then he got an assignment to write the Saint novelization. And then, I may be getting the chronology of some of this wrong, but then some convicted felon contacted him and said, I've got a great story about my own criminality. And uh, Burl wow. thought, you know, he, that is a great story. And he wrote that guy's story, and that was a very successful true crime novel, and then true crime book, rather. And then he just he got on the true crime train, and I think he's written, what, a dozen true crime books now? Yeah, yeah, he's done well. He's done well. Uh, he gives you a good percentage, I hope. No, no, no percentage. <laughs> So when you were on Charlie Rose, did he uh, come out of the shower naked? or? No, no. I was fortunate in that when I went to Washington, D.C., it was, it was called, the show he was doing was called CBS News Night Watch. It was on um, after the talk shows on CBS in the wee hours of the morning. And when they flew me out there, he actually got sick, and I had a substitute host. I don't remember who it was, but it was a good segment. Um, you can see it on YouTube. I think it's it's up there. Um, me talking about pilots on, on CBS Night Watch with Charlie Rose, with Charlie Rose not there, and some other guy. <laughs> was some I other think guy. Charlie was in the shower. Yeah, he was in the shower getting ready for someone else. Oh, my oh, God. My God, I'm terrible. Politically incorrect. Um, now, uh, website. You have a website for people to uh, come find you on. Yes, it's very hard to find. It's called LeeGoldberg.com. Very original. And um, now let's see, your books can be found on the website, all bookstores, and, and uh, what's coming up next? You're doing a couple more books now? This my, year? Next, my next book is Bone Canyon. It's the sequel to Lost Hills. It comes out in January of 2021. 
My current book, Fake Truth, uh, the third book in the Ian Ludlow series, just came out a few weeks ago. And I have a series on Hallmark that I urge you all to see. It's called Mystery 101. It's a series of movies. Um, I just had a marathon yesterday of all five movies, but there'll be some new movies coming out uh, in 2021 as soon as the pandemic eases up. Hallmark Channel. Okay. So we'll look for that. And uh, we'll have your books and website, everything up on our website, so people can find you with one click in case case they can't find Lee Goldberg. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, be oh, on the show. Huh? My pleasure. And and the gift basket was wonderful. Oh, you really didn't just send me all this caviar. It well, was really yeah. above and beyond. But thank you. <laughs> that's what we do here. Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. 
HouseOfMystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.